If you have been an educator any time in the last 20 years and don't know who Dr. Doug Fisher is, what rock have you been hiding under? <laughs> All kidding aside, Doug Fisher is known as an expert in a number of things, literacy, professional learning communities, but today he and Jeff chat about leadership credibility. Doug wrote, Leader Credibility, The Essential Traits of Those Who Engage, Inspire, and Transform, which is exactly why we invited him to talk with us. Extremely relevant content. Enjoy. Good day, leaders, educators, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us, those that are joining us live uh, currently, whether if you are a Leadership Circle member, we welcome you. And for those that are watching this video later and in a couple of weeks when we post this as a publicly available podcast, um, we know that you're going to enjoy what we're about to bring. So now, welcome to a new school year. I know that sounds strange for some of you to hear now. Where I'm currently sitting, my kids, for example, have been in school for a month. However, throughout the country, as you know, depending on where you're standing, students start school at all different times. And we can officially say now throughout the country after Labor Day weekend that things are definitely cranking. And um, like I said, that has been the case in some places, but it really depends upon where you are in the country. So this is really the official start of now our week to week leader chat. Over the summer months, we were more once every month, but now we are back into the weekly um, schedule and we have these incredible guests lined up. I mean, it's like I've said before, rock stars of education. And today is the perfect example of that. So last week, I was talking with uh, our guests and I'm gonna introduce here in a minute, uh, Doug Fisher, Dr. Douglas Fisher. And Doug and I were chatting about this show. And um, I've, I've read and followed Doug for a long time. I've heard him speak, etc. cetera. Um, so I told him that I know him better than he knows me. And as we began talking, um, there were some things about some of his research that I was unaware of. So I just became more and more intrigued. The, the show's content became more and more relevant. He actually sent me a, a copy of his book, one that I'm going to be talking about today. One of the pieces we'll be chatting about. And um, I made a joke with him that he, he kind of ruined my Labor Day weekend. Didn't ruin it. He just, I, I, I focused a lot of my time on this book. Um, so reading through it, marking it up, earmarking pages, etc. So um, I'm just really excited for this discussion because I know how critical it is to the leaders that we serve and that we will continue to serve throughout the leadership circle here at Cognia. So let me read uh, uh, Douglas's bio to you very, very quickly, and then I'm going to get him here on the screen to, uh, to, to begin chatting with us. Douglas Fisher, PhD, is a professor and chair of educational leadership at San Diego State University and a leader at Health Sciences High and Middle School College, having been an early intervention teacher and elementary school educator. He is a recipient of an International Reading Association, 
William S. Gray uh, Citation of Merit, an Exemplary Leader Award from the Conference on English Leadership of NCTE, as well as Krista McAuliffe Award for Excellence in Teacher Education. He has published numerous articles on reading and literacy, differentiated instruction, and curriculum design. A few of his books are The Restorative Practices Playbook, PLC Plus, Better Decisions and Greater Impact by Design, Building Equity, and today we're also talking about leader credibility. Um, like I said, I, I, I know him better than he knows me, but we're, we're trying to shore that up. So without further ado, let me please welcome Doug Fisher to the screen. Doug, well, thanks thank for being you. here. Yeah, of thanks. course. Thank you, and thanks for the invitation. And I was hearing our you reflect on our conversation last week, and um, I think it was mutual. We had um, some really interesting things around uh, collaboration and leader credibility, and and the challenging role that leaders face today, even more so. I mean, last year was the hardest year of my career. Um, so far this year, uh, things are a bit different. They're a bit more um, calm bit more energy well so you're you're sitting in beautiful uh sunny san diego but you're not outside here you are right in your office maybe maybe just what did i miss in your bio tell tell our listeners um something more um mm -hmm. i just gave a very brief version you have longer versions so um how have you been or maybe what made last year so difficult for you i mean other than the uh, obvious so yeah, I, I think um, so. I'm at a school. I, I work at Health Sciences High, and uh, we started this school in 2007 in partnership with San Diego Unified School District. And last year, it was really hard to get kids to talk to each other. And and I think some of the ways we started the school year contributed to that. Like we had them very far apart. We had tape on the floor of where they could be. We had masks on, and we stood away from them. There were all these logistics rules that were important at the time, but it it resulted in kids not really wanting to talk to each other. And, it, and attendance was lower than normal for us. Uh, participation was lower. We called it the crisis of engagement. And it was hard work last year. And already this year, we're, we're in our second week. Already this year, it feels different. It feels like the energy's there. Students are talking to each other. Our attendance rates are up. Our participation rates are up. So it's really, I mean, it was a hard year, but we did it. And, and this year we're reaping the benefits of that so you you have you and i were chatting about this you have this really really incredible uh kind of past and current and of course future career and you know you balance all of these things from supporting students daily to uh research and writing and supporting districts in other places in the country so how how has kind of your career trajectory or learning evolved over time and maybe what are some of the trends or things that you foresee in the future uh, so um i became a teacher i wanted to be a teacher i always wanted to be a teacher i really thought i would spend my career like my stepmother in the classroom for 30 whatever years um several years into my career i started getting tapped like you should be a leader you should be vice principal you should be this you should be coordinator and eventually I did it and I really liked it. I really liked um, having a, a little bit of a spread of effect of thinking about where we could go and providing professional development. And then I've been lucky to meet really influential people over my career who say, hey, you want to partner on this? You want to partner on this? 
we got this very large grant um, from the guy who owned Price Club at the time, Costco, and said, let's, let's create the educational equivalent of a teaching hospital where, where there's deep involvement between a university and the school system. And that was really cool because I got to see all these different uh, ways that schools were being run, different ways to think about how you support teachers' development, how you give feedback, how you design professional learning, all of that. Um, and along the way, when I learned something, I would write about it. And I wrote a, you know, a little book here, I wrote an article, and it became kind of a passion to say, once I've learned something at school, I want to write about it. And if someone reads it, great. Isn't it interesting how one's uh, career, if, if you just kind of lean into it and trust that mm. certain things will or are supposed to happen, how they do, even though you don't know what they're going to be. So I too started as a fourth and fifth grade teacher. And um, mm -hmm. if you would have asked me during my first couple of years as a fourth and fifth grade teacher, what I thought I would do and say, well, I, I'm doing it. I don't, what do you mean? But I think I'm going to do right. it. Right. And then, right. you know, somebody takes you under their wing or pokes you a little bit and says, you know, you should consider. And you think, yeah. well, maybe, and then you do. And then that leads to another thing. I, I never said, you know, I want to be a superintendent one day. I mean, I think that would have sounded or felt silly. Um, just things sometimes just evolve, right? And so I yep. imagine doing what you do and writing about all the things that you learn is constantly evolving. That yep. being the case, what are you seeing are some of the really important trends we should pay attention to? I mean, based upon your perch, you know, because yeah. you're, you're on the dance floor and the balcony is what I say, right? Heifetz oh. says you spend time on the dance floor and sometimes the really reflective leaders strategically walk up the stairs and get up on the balcony. So yeah. as you're writing, I consider you on the balcony. So what are some of the things that you think, yikes, we better pay attention to these things moving forward? Uh, so one of them that's on my mind a lot is teacher teams. How do we reform teacher teams? We were getting really good at this. And in some places in the pandemic, it was great. I mean, teacher teams came together, high levels of efficacy, collective and individual, people feeling real good, really good. In other places, we suspended teacher teams. We took things off teachers' plates. A lot of people are reporting feeling isolated right now. That's not a good place for teachers to be. It's not a good place to question if you're having an impact on students, if you're connected to your colleagues, that puts us at risk to leave the profession or to become demoralized. So I think right now, a prime role for leaders is to help teacher teams get rebuilt, to, to see their collective efficacy, to see the power that they have to influence students' learning. So that's on my mind a lot. Uh, and I think we, we should be talking with people about their, their immediate impact and saying, when you did X, I saw these great things. For some reason, some people have disconnected their effort and the impact it has. So that's one on my mind. I think also we need to really confront, I'll say one more, Jeff, really confront this mindset of learning loss. This um, very political, uh, very, um, it's very popular in the press to talk about all the regression of kids. The effects is there's three meta-analyses done on COVID. 
the effect size is very minimal, minus 0.13, approximately the same as the impact of summer on students' learning. So yeah, and it's and this is the average, and I know some kids were hit way harder. But when teacher teams spend their energy talking about loss, we move into deficit thinking. And as we move into deficit thinking, we start to lower our expectations. At the logic would go. Last year and the year before, they didn't learn everything they're supposed to learn. So this year, I'm going to do makeup from last year so that next year I'll do this year's content. And it becomes this losing proposition where we lower expectations. We need to change the narrative to, yes, there's unfinished learning, I get that. But let's move to acceleration. How will we accelerate the learning that students do rather than spend our energy talking about learning loss and COVID slide and all the other things we hear on the press? So this is why we're in trouble because um, based on what you just said, I, I wanna follow these two paths um, mm. for a long period of time, but of course time is limited. <clears throat> but I, I do wanna make a couple of comments because I'm so intrigued. Number one, um, I, th I think I told you this a long time ago, my dissertation was on collaborative systems and the impact that has not just on educators, but most importantly, students. Um, mm -hmm. So the concept on how teachers uh, collaborate, regardless of what you call it, use the acronym PLCs mm -hmm. at the system um, where teachers are creating this ongoing professional development based upon what they're learning through teaching their students on what's going well and what's mm -hmm. not and how they deprivatize their practice to support one another, etc. Um, I have thought, number one, that's always, always going to be the best and most efficient yes. uh, professional development we can provide. Um, in the meantime, I also think that's the case for leaders, which is mm -hmm. my current mission is that I struggle relative to when I see leaders move up the food chain, so to speak, in education, the less collaborative they become, which isn't necessarily their fault, has to do with sometimes the political conditions. In, in the meantime, as, as we talk about systems for teachers, if we're also not doing that as leaders, it becomes pretty difficult to actually model or to expect in some ways. So does, does that make sense? And have you seen a lens into that where we push teachers to do this, but then as leaders, we sometimes have a hard time being open and honest relative to what's going well and maybe what's not. Yep, totally. And I think as leaders, we need to have our, whether you call it professional learning communities with other leaders, we need time to develop our collective with our admin team at our school site or at the district office, but also across schools. You know, where is, where is the, the, as you, you know, the circles that you come into contact with other leaders where you're intentionally learning together, where you bring problems to, to talk about, to surface. We call them common challenges. What's the challenge that we're coming together for? And what are we going to do to learn and how to address this challenge? Um, there, there is, there's not research on this, but people have been writing about collective leader efficacy. How do we build the collective power of leaders at a school site or across school sites. I've been to way too many principal meetings where there was no collaboration. It was, you know, I have to protect my school, I have to protect, I don't steal my teachers, you know, all this stuff. So it didn't generate a collaborative atmosphere. Years ago, I was working with a superintendent and, he, and I was doing a training for principals and they wouldn't talk to each other. There was like 90 people in the room and they would not talk to each other. And when I debriefed with a few of them privately, I, I learned 
that their principal evaluations, they were ranked. So you are the number one performing principal, you are number two, and they were given their number out of 46. Here's your ranking, and how are you gonna raise your ranking? So as a result of that, they didn't talk to each other because someone might steal an idea and go higher on the ranks. So <laughs> we create these competitive systems and you know, we, we're all in this together. We are public educators who are trying to serve the children that the public entrusted in us. And how do we, and I need my colleagues, I need other leaders to say, hey, here's something I'm trying on and you know, how does it work for you? And we have to come together to solve these challenges that we're facing. Yeah, you know, Simon Sinek, right? He talks about the infinite game, right? And the concept that, listen, if this is about continuous improvement, if ever the infinite game, as Sinek describes it, should be alive and well, it should be in education, right? There, mm -hmm. There is actually no winner, right, as it right. relates to education. No one wins, right? right. Are there um, people that are feel like they're on the losing side? Yes which makes this infinite game so important that yeah. we, you know, a rising tide lifts all ships. And unless That's leaders right. take on this position and stop jockeying as though that they are, you know, experts or their badges of honor that comes with this, that's not what education is about. And that was nobody's why usually when they started education, right? right. right? So right. as a fourth and fifth grade teacher, when I started, I never thought, well, you know, I'll probably earn some incredible awards and then eventually everyone <laughs> will look up to me um, as a hero. Mm -hmm. You know, I started because I was interested in teaching children, right? And so yep. it's it's just interesting how things shift, especially for leaders. And you and I last week started gelling as we were talking about our anxieties relative to leadership. When I When I circle up leaders, superintendents, assistant superintendents all the way down to the principal and I asked them, so what are the pain points in education? Um, there's a lot of consistencies, right? They talk about mm -hmm. huge shortages of teachers and staff and uh, political discourse or lack thereof and some of the turbulence they see with governance, et cetera. Rarely do they list themselves. Rarely do they say, you know, the, one of the biggest pain points is actually leadership. Mm -hmm. The fact that we have up to 40% turnover in our positions on down through the principals. We yeah. have major issues with teacher turnover, but not 40%, not sometimes right. more. So you and I really started uh, hitting a flow when we started talking about our worries and anxieties relative to leaders and what's expected of them, uh, the future of them, and so forth. And then we started leaning in and talking about this leader credibility concept, mm -hmm. um, which yeah. we're going to get into. So, you know, just can you talk to us about the overall perspective of this issue of credibility of leaders that you've done some work in writing about? Yeah, sure. Thanks. So teacher credibility has been in the research for a long time. It has a very high effect. Essentially, I could summarize the research is, do I think I can learn from you? And it actually doesn't really matter what strategy or tool I use. If I believe I can learn from this teacher, I'm probably gonna learn a lot more than if I don't believe I can learn from this teacher. And that's you know decades of research and, and very clear that the same strategy, the same tool, the same lesson plan could get different outcomes based on whether or not the students in that class believe they can learn from that teacher. 
So that's been around for a long time. People have talked about building credibility to, to teacher students. It's different than a student and teacher relationship. It's whether or not I think I can learn from you. So when they looked at the components of, of teacher credibility, people have been working on that. But during the pandemic, uh, I started noticing that there was a compromise in leader credibility, that, that people weren't always trusting their leaders. They didn't know, they questioned whether their leaders had the competence to do the job. They didn't see a direction where their organization was going and how they fit in. So we started doing some reading personally, because it's how it works for me. So the interesting thing about my career is I don't really write about one thing. There are you know university professors who like their expertise is assessment or their expertise is whatever. I write about problems that we're trying to solve here. And there seemed to be less credibility that were that was happening with our leaders and these questions and perhaps some grievances and some conflicts that weren't we weren't used to seeing here. And so I started looking at credibility and in the business world, the nonprofit world, government, healthcare, there are all these studies and all these recommendations about credibility that I couldn't really find in education. We couldn't really find like big studies on leader credibility in the school system, um, but we found them in all these other places. So I started reading across all these like, wow, that's how business was thinking about it. That's how healthcare was thinking about it. That's how government, nonprofit, how do you build credibility with people who report to you? And it's different than the credibility that the people that you, so there's a difference between, I'll say it differently. The credibility measures are different for reports versus reporting. Like my boss has a different view of my credibility than people who report to me. Okay, so so early in, 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 in the book, uh, Leader Credibility, you get into that, right? You start to talk about, obviously, leaders are judged. Right. I, I sometimes mm. I call it um, judging up. Right. We yeah. tend to judge leaders whether we know what it's like to walk in their shoes or not. Right. We right. judge um, our supervisors. Um, we always have this kind of running perspective of whether they're doing a good job or not based upon what I right. see. We tend to ignore what we don't see. Now, but you talk about this kind of judgment and this credibility is is uh, established in different ways based upon different audiences, right? So, mm -hmm. talk to us about that because I think that's important for a leader to understand. Yeah, and so when you look at so the foundation of a credible is trust. I mean, if you don't have trust, relational trust, it's going to be hard to be credible. It's going to be hard to accomplish any of your initiatives. It's going to be hard to accomplish any of the programs that you want to bring to schools or school districts if there's not a level of trust. And so when you think about trust, you know, it's trust to your direct reports. It's trust to the people we serve, kids and their families and the community. It's trust to things like boards and unions. And so trust is a really important uh, component. Megan Shannon Moran has spent a lot of time analyzing trust in schools and she's she breaks it into component parts and some of them are obvious you know are you honest are you reliable um but then there's you know benevolence do you have other people's best interest at heart and <clears throat> there are measures of trust there are trust scales uh, there are things we can do to rebuild there's actually research on how to rebuild trust when it's broken and so the tools we have at our disposal for trust are, are pretty robust after trust we think about competence interestingly the major way that your reports think of you as competent is your communication. And that was compromised in COVID. 
Like we were changing messages a lot. We had to. Health information was coming out. Scientists were saying things. We changed the health information on a regular basis. So communication got compromised. Our supervisors see us differently in terms of competence than the people who report to us. The people who report to us by and large look at communication, how we communicate. Uh, and then from there, we look at dynamism, this kind of this passion and this energy that you bring. Uh, immediacy, the sense of relatedness. It's from a concept from psychology about how related we feel. And then lastly, for leaders, how are we future focused? How do we, how do we set the vision or the direction and help people see that they are part of that? So those five areas together create leader credibility. Do I think you are a credible leader and do I want to follow with you? So let me, let me present uh, uh, what, what I think is, is a dilemma um, that I actually think that you, that, that you kind of, you, you hit on all quite a bit um, in this concept of credibility. One dilemma that I see um, is that educational leaders, um, you know, are so focused on uh, proficiency. People expect mm -hmm. them to be proficient, to have answers, to sometimes some really complicated, nuanced dilemmas. And yep. so then the leader in the meantime has a difficult time uh, through what is also a very important leadership trait of showing vulnerability, right? Yep. So um, in order to have trust, sometimes we have to be open and honest and vulnerable with even those that we serve. So. Yep. The dilemma I see leaders facing is especially during COVID because even yep. during and post, no one knows how to do this really. I mean, so right, we are tr really trying to build the ship mid-flight and it is difficult and complicated and it's also dangerous literally to someone's career to sometimes admit, folks, I don't, yeah. I don't know how to do this. And uh, I apologize if we're not giving you the answer that you're seeking. Right. Maybe give us some more time. And with the purest of intentions, we will do the best we can. But you're going to have to be patient and know that we will, uh, we will lead based upon what's right and what's just. And by the way, make mistakes along the way. That's difficult yeah. for a leader to, to sometimes openly and honestly admit because people right. expect them to be, quote, proficient. Right. Yep. So can you talk about based upon what you talk about in your book on how can a leader think through that to still be credible based upon the different audiences that they're trying to support? Yep. So there's this this balance. So, yes, we have to be honest. And when we don't know something, that's part of our honesty. We say, here's the best evidence we have so far. But that goes also into our dynamism and our immediacy, the relatedness. If we have trust and we've been working on relatedness, I feel connected to my community, to the staff, to whomever, they're going to give us a little bit more leeway than if they already don't, if there's, if there's no sense of relatedness. I feel for the leaders who started their roles during remote teaching and COVID. It was harder to establish those things. Uh, and we see a huge turnover in people who were hired in those times. So there are tools that we have to say, what's the relatedness that people are seeing? How connected do they feel? 
what are the intentional things I can do? One of the dynamism pieces is where we put our hands. It's so simple. In our culture, the way you carry your hands communicates things. And I think often people aren't even aware <clears throat> of some of the, the ways their hands are communicating what they believe. <clears throat> There's a position called T-Rex. I'm exaggerating so you can see on the camera. Uh -huh. We tend yeah. to hold our hands up a little bit like this. It's called the T-Rex position. It is a very weak position. <clears throat> and it happens a lot when people are sharing to a, a, a group. We tend to put our hands up like that. And <clears throat> the nonverbal that the, the audience is seeing is this person doesn't believe what they're saying. It's weak. And of course, these are culturally bound and things like that. Some people, you know, you cross your arms when you're talking to someone. And sometimes that's a comfortable position. And sometimes it conveys defensiveness. And I don't think we've analyzed enough those those behaviors that we engage in. There's research going back, Tom Good did in 1987, two decades of research on teacher expectations. And then he redid it in 2018 in an article called Pygmalion Effect in Education. And he showed there's a series of behaviors that teachers engage in when they, when they perceive the student to be low achieving. They call on them less, less they seat them further away, they recognize their contribution less frequently. There's a list. We took that same list and said, is that what you do to low performing staff? Is because we know that teachers do those things subconsciously, unconsciously. Okay. They do those things to kids who are not performing well. And are we doing the same thing? So if we're in a staff meeting, if we're in a professional learning, do we do those same things to our staff? And by the way, the other people are noticing how we treat certain members of the staff and it compromises our credibility. So we use a little inventory and say, here are the things that Tom Good taught us about how we treat people who are low achieving, students in his case, and record yourself or watch yourself or have someone else watch you. Do you do any of those things to the staff that you perceive to be low, low performing? Well, uh, from the very beginning of you discussing this, I've been um, nervous about what my hands are doing. So right now they're <laughs> placed in front of me. Um, <laughs> okay, so, you know, in fact, I pulled a quote from, from the book that trust is the currency of leaders is what you described. I really appreciate that you went in talking about how how competence is actually evaluated because from a leadership perspective, to be aware of those things is very important. So if I am yep. talking with um, X audience, I should be aware on how they're evaluating me relative to whether right. they can trust me. Um, right. Also, if I'm talking to an audience Y, which they may be evaluating me differently and I better pay yep. attention to that so I know how to engage in that level of discourse. I really appreciated that. And then it brings us to what I think is another dilemma uh, for leaders right now. Principal all the way up through superintendent. It is that, uh, especially during and post-COVID, leaders, I know this for a fact, are having a really difficult time engaging in this concept of being forward-thinking, you know, being mm -hmm. these kind of looking to the future kind of leaders. Right for which, by the way, they were probably originally motivated by. And currently, they're struggling through this, you know, this tyranny of the urgent and what's coming across their desk and just trying to get it off their desk in order to demonstrate proficiency and having a hard time looking into the future. I mean, how do you look to the horizon when you feel like you're underwater, right? It's 
difficult for leaders to do that. And yet it's really unfortunate because we count on them for that, to be the ones to set vision, to be able to point in yeah. the direction for which maybe others can't see because that's what a visionary is. So yeah. can you talk to us about that concept of leaders being forward thinkers, especially during these very difficult and turbulent times in education? Yep. So um, as you were talking, I was thinking about uh, kind of one of my ahas in reading some of the business literature was about this open door policy. And in education, we're very into the open door policy, right? Like my door is always open to you. And there's, there are conversations going on in business around what that does. Who has enough privilege and position to access the open door policy? Who has the wherewithal to do that and the fortitude to do that? And is it the open door policy only allowing you certain voices to be heard because of your open door policy versus you having a systematic way of checking in with the people that you that report to you? So this whole idea of open door policy. But to your point though, when we have all this open door policy and we don't feel comfortable literally or figuratively closing the door, we don't have enough time to engage in future-focused strategic thinking because it's always about management right now. And so if we don't have the time to say in our workday, I need an hour to think through the next two months of professional learning. I need an hour to design this new intervention for after-school programs for kids or whatever it is. If we're not leading to the future, and that's the short-term leading. And then what am I thinking about for next school year? What are the kinds of things I want to be working on next school year in the next five years? And as you move up, you know, superintendents and cabinet tend to think multiple years as they do it. And principals tend to think a little bit less, although they generally have a sense of where they want to go in their school. But if they don't have time to engage in that work and that thinking, it ends up being day-to-day -day crisis management. Because, and I think this open door policy has started to interfere, it's well-intended, but it doesn't allow us to have time to say, I need some time to go deeply into where we're going in the future. And if I think about that, that future focused idea, <clears throat> the, um, the research from business says you have to have insight, outsight, and foresight. I think that's so cool. So insights like your past. So who were you as an educator? What did you learn? Get to know yourself from the past. That's important. Outside is like the possibilities, like thinking and reading and talking about long term. Like some of the, the books we read as educational leaders set a future for us. And, and like, do we have agenda items with our leadership teams about future thinking? Like, where are we going as an organization? And then we think about this idea of foresight. How can you use the evidence that we have right now to make predictions about where we'll be? And yeah, we're probably going to be wrong on some of the predictions. We don't have crystal balls, but we have experience and intuition. And we have to trust some of that. So we have the data, we have the evidence, and then we say, based on what I know, based on what I think about, here's where I think we're going. So that, that kind of, those, the different sites of sites, were really interesting for me to think about future focused. You know, um, hearing you talk, it reminds me when, when I was a principal, I have, I had a mentor and I, I still have this, she, she's still a mentor to me in so many ways. 
and she would call the school. Um, I would call me at the school. I would answer, and she would say, "What are you doing?" I'd say, "Well, I'm I'm in my office answering emails." And she said, "Yeah, that's why I'm asking what you're doing. Like, why are you there?" She would ask me to hand the phone to my um, PA or secretary, and I would, and she would ask them, "How long has Jeff been in his office today?" And get the real report, and then she would, in a very kind way, almost scold me for you're not in the right place. You need to be out in the field. You need to be out in classrooms. And I would say, I know, but I'm, I'm trying to get this stuff done so I can do that. And she'd say, stop it, flip it, go do those things and then try to get the other stuff done. Right. Yeah. Don't make that a priority. I, I want leaders to listen to you and I want them to carve out intentional time, realizing that to be a, a forward thinking leader they need to provide capacity for themselves to do so as opposed yep. to otherwise they will get stuck in this kind of um hamster wheel of everything that comes across their desk right that urgent issues that we're describing that even though they may not be urgent so let me ask you this last kind of question that we ask everyone but it's my favorite um because we tend not in our community we give content like this because we're always worried that leaders don't have enough time to do the reading and reflecting that they should or could. Um, so therefore we take something like leader credibility and we try to boil it down into a conversation. Um, imagine you and I were around a table with leaders having a discussion as opposed to talking at leaders. What would be your pragmatic kind of last, uh, this, you know, last piece of advice for them at this point in time? What would you want them to hear in, a, in an elevator speech, so to speak? Uh, so my, my general one is your credibility is influencing your entire agenda, what you're able to accomplish as a leader. And are you brave enough to reflect on it and say, where are places that I'm already credible and where are places I need to grow. Just having these five areas helped me think about, oh, here's places I need to grow. I need to think much more about our new faculty, new staff, <clears throat> and my relational time with them, the immediacy that they experience. Um, I need to be thinking more about setting the future. Like, where are we going as an organization? How are we, we called it rebound this year. How are we rebounding and what's the direction? That's what I would like leaders to work on right now. Doug, um, I, I am so thankful that you've been able to spend this time. I have, I have uh, tried to keep discipline throughout this discussion. You, meant, you may have noticed I didn't even go down the learning loss discussion and I would have yeah. loved to because we could talk about that for an hour. There are a variety yeah. of things that I would love to talk to you about and know that you know, you've know you really influenced me um, throughout my years. And I'm just one of so many people. I just wanna say thank you for the work that you've done, you're doing, and I know you will do in the future. And I'm probably gonna annoy you later and wanna come back and talk again because I didn't love even it. be able to come close to touch on all the things I'd love to chat with you about. Love it. That'd be very fun. All right. Well, thanks again, Doug. I really, really appreciate you. And I know our listeners do as well. Ladies and gentlemen, um, I don't know if you can see this. Hopefully you can. This is the, this is just the, 
the, the, the front page of leader credibility that we were discussing with Doug Fisher, um, he didn't ask me to talk about this. In fact, when I called Doug to have this leader chat, I didn't know about this. Isn't that interesting? As we started talking, he started talking to me about leader credibility, and then off we went. He sent me this, and then that's what's really kind of launched this discussion. So um, I urge you to, to look into leader credibility, the essential traits of those who um, engage, inspire, and transform. Leaders, educators, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for engaging with us in this leader chat. I know you've uh, appreciated Doug as I have. Everyone, like I often say, be well.